One of the panelists, his name is uh, Dr. William Barrick. He was uh, here doing our Sunday school class. He was a professor. He is a professor at the Master's Seminary. He has been here since uh, 19, or been at the Master's Seminary since 1997. Uh, before that, he was a missionary to Bangladesh uh, for 15 years, he and his wife, and uh, they served there. He served in Bible translation. She also ministered there in different ways, and we're very privileged to have him here opening up the Word of God in the book of Psalms this morning. So as he does, let's give him a warm welcome uh, this morning. Good morning again. Oh, some of you are awake. Good morning. Oh, there's, there we are. You're all here and accounted for. Please turn with me to Psalm 87. There's an outline in your bulletin if you wish to follow along there or take notes. As you're reading through the New Testament, you usually start with the Gospels. And we usually suggest that people read the Gospel of John especially. As you're reading the Gospel of John, there's a very important topic that is revealed fairly early in the book. And it's the topic of the new birth. And there's some surprising things that are said by Jesus about the new birth. And one of the things that perhaps is the most shocking is when he addresses Nicodemus. And he said, you are the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? It makes you stop and think, why did he say that? How could Nicodemus know about the new birth? Well, that's what we want to talk about this morning. Before we begin, let's bow in prayer, shall we? Father, we just thank you and praise you for your abundant goodness. We praise you for your word. We thank you for the salvation that you've given in Jesus Christ. We pray for the comfort of families grieving over lost ones who have not come to faith in Jesus Christ. We pray for those who grieve for loved ones who have passed away even recently. And Lord, if they are believers, we know that there is rejoicing in a believing one going home, even though there's still grief at the loss. And we pray for comfort. We pray for a peace that passes all understanding. We pray for the salvation of loved ones who have not yet believed. We ask that they would understand what it is that we talk about when we talk about the new birth. And Father, help us each one to live lives in such a way That those around us will ask a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That we might have an opportunity then to explain and tell them what that hope is all about. Father, we thank you for this church and this testimony and this community. For the spread of the gospel not only here but in the short-term missions and in sending missionaries out to serve you around the world. We pray that the ministry of this church might be multiplied again and again over and over. We thank you for uh, the pastor here, Pastor Lum, for his dedication to you, for his service. Thank you for the hospitality shown to my wife and I while we've been here, and the hospitality of the people of this church in the way that they have greeted us and uh, the way they've made us feel at home. 
among fellow believers. We just pray that, Lord, you'll just guide and direct us now as we go through this service this morning, that our attention might be riveted on your word, riveted upon you, not upon man. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 87, a short psalm, a beautiful psalm, a psalm that has been used uh, in the past. There's uh, several hymns based upon this psalm. One of them is entitled Zion, founded on the mountains. Uh, Another one is O Zion Haste. And there are many others of like name that are used in our worship services from time to time to talk about Zion, sing about Zion, and to praise God, the God of Zion. The psalm is a psalm of the sons of Korah. As we learned in the Sunday school hour, the sons of Korah are those sons of the man Korah who was swallowed by the earth in Numbers chapter 16. And those sons were not slain with him according to Numbers chapter 26 verse 10. So this is a remnant of grace, an example of God's grace, unmerited favor shown to this group of men who served generation after generation after generation in the service of the tabernacle, the service of the temple, in creating music of worship, in leading the times of worship in song in both tabernacle and temple. They are the authors of this psalm. They are the ones who provide us with this message and how fitting it is that they would provide us with this particular message as those who have experienced grace. Psalm 87 picks up on verse 9 of Psalm 86. Psalm 86 verse 9 says, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. Now, the question comes to the Old Testament believer, especially those who are Israelites. How can this be? How is God going to manage to bring Gentile peoples, all nations, into the family of God? How will he do that? When will he do that? What's the basis for it? So Psalm 87 picks up on that theme and explains exactly how this will occur. Psalm 87 is also an interpretation of two other psalms of the sons of Korah, Psalms 46 and Psalm 48. As we look at those two psalms, we find that they are songs of Zion. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And it says in verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. And then Psalm 48 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. We see the same themes here in Psalm 87. We see the mention of holy mountains, of the dwelling places of God, of knowing God, of God the Most High, of God establishing Zion, of there being streams and rivers of joy or gladness. The same is in Psalms 46 and 48. Augustine, the great church father from the 5th century A.D., chose verse 3 
of Psalm 87 for the theme and title of his book, The City of God, in which he describes what a believer's life should be like. So this psalm has garnered a good deal of attention. However, it's one of those parts of the Old Testament that sometimes has receded into obscurity, and some people today would not even think about reading it on a topic that we're talking about today of the new birth. And yet we'll find out that that is exactly what this psalm is all about. This is the psalm that explains what born again is all about in the Old Testament. Let's look at the psalm. Let's read it, first of all, if you'll follow along as I read all the verses. And I'm going to read it the way they would have read it in the tabernacle or temple with the headings of the psalm and the subheading of the psalm. And I'll explain a little bit more about that later on when we get to the last part of the psalm. So I'll begin with the heading on Psalm 87. A psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Selah. I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This one was born there. But of Zion, it shall be said... This one and that one were born in her. And the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord will count when He registers the peoples. This one was born there. Selah. Then those who sing, as well as those who play the flutes, some translations have there, those who dance, shall say, All my springs of joy are in you. A song... A psalm of the sons of Korah for the choir director, according to Mahalat Leonot. But that's the psalm. That's the entirety of the psalm, including its literary and historical heading and its musical subheading. As I said, I'll explain more about why I read it that way as we get later in the psalm, as we deal with that final heading, especially the subheading. First of all, we see Zion's sovereign selection. God selects Zion. God chooses Zion. We see that in verses 1 through 3. Then in verses 4 through 6, we will see Zion's selected citizens. Who are the citizens of Zion whom God has selected? And then in verse 7, we will see Zion's celebrating citizens. And by that time, we'll have a good idea of why they are celebrating and why it is such a joy for them as they say, all my springs of joy are in you. First of all, Zion's sovereign selection. Notice, first of all, that this is a testimony of sanctifying grace. Sanctification, or to set aside as holy, or to make holy, is what is talked about in verse 1. His foundation, God's foundation, is in the holy mountains. They are holy mountains because God has set them apart for a specific task or service in His program. He has made them distinct 
and different. To be holy is to be without rival and to be without sin. These mountains are called holy because there is no other mountain on earth that is chosen as the dwelling place of God. And it is without sin only in the sense that God has set it apart for his service. Mountains don't sin. But the point is, God does not desire sin to be committed on these mountains, these hills that he has selected. He is the one who has chosen. He is the one who has set apart. He is the one who has founded Zion. We see that established again in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 32, where Isaiah says, the Lord has founded Zion. And the idea is the Lord and no other. He has chosen Zion. And we can ask, why would you choose Zion? Well, let's go on to see more of his divine selection in the evidence of his great love. Because verse 2 says he loves the gates of Zion. And he doesn't just love them. He loves them more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Jacob, a name for Israel. In other words, there's no other place in Israel God loves so much as this place that he has established that would be the place where he would reveal his glory. The place where the tabernacle would be established. The place where the temple would be built. The places where his glory would fill the sanctuary and would be seen as evidence of his presence by the people. The place from which he would depart, his glory would depart in the book of Ezekiel when his people disobey him and turn against him. Why, did, why does God love this place? Well, the term love here is not just the idea of emotion. It's the idea of God purposefully, voluntarily choosing this location. There's an old Jewish proverb that says, If a king has many palaces, indeed a palace in every province, which palace does he love the most? Obviously, the one in the province that is his home. You know, we think about that in the news today. Why is uh, one city in Libya more uh, important to uh, Muammar Gaddafi than any other city? Even than Benghazi itself. Even than Tripoli. Because it's the place of his birth. It's his home. It's where he has his major palace. He loves that. That is the center. That is the place he thinks of as being part of his being. Well, that's the way we're looking here and seeing this. That the Lord loves this place because of the place of his revealing himself to mankind. Revealing himself to his people, Israel. He loves the gates of Zion. Now, if, we've, if you've been to Israel, if you've seen pictures of Israel, you look at Mount Zion and say, That's a mountain? It's just a hill. It's just a bump on the landscape. Yeah, it's got two valleys on either side of it. And it's got some nice looking trees on it. And snow falls on it in the winter. And it's nice looking, yes. But a mountain? It's not like the Olympic range up here. With these glorious peaks up over there on the peninsula. Go up above the uh, timber line and come out. And you, the clouds offer and cover it. But when the sun comes out on them and the clouds rise, you stand and, and admire them. Or the mountains over in this region. You look at them and you say, wow, 
wonderful mountains. Zion doesn't match those at all. You go to Israel, go to northern Israel, you have a mountain up there over 3,000 meters high, over 9,000 feet, close to 10,000 plus. Mount Hermon, beautiful, beautiful mountain, snow-capped, forests on its side. You say, that's a mountain now. That's beautiful, all right? Why would God choose Zion and not Mount Hermon? And you say, well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a place where the city could be placed and the, the, the residence of the king, and, and it's defensible. It has valleys on either side. Yes, but it's open to the north. The north, armies can just march into Jerusalem from the north without any hindrance because there's no valley on the north. There's no protection from the north. Why did God choose an indefensible place like that? Because, he said in the book of Isaiah several times, in chapter 30 and other places, he wanted his people to trust in him for their defense. Not in fortresses, not in hilltop sanctuaries, not in armaments, but to trust in him. So we're left with this. Well, God chose it. He loves it because he loves it. It's kind of like you and me, right? He loves me. He loves you. Why? What have we done to merit the love of God? We've done everything not to merit the love of God. Before we come to Christ, we are enemies of God, according to Romans chapter 5. And if you keep your finger in Psalm 87 and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7, we find out that God's selection and choosing even of Israel is purely because of love, not because of merit. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. He didn't select them because they were holier. He didn't select them because they were wiser. He didn't select them because they were stronger. Verse 8, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Israel was loved by God. They did not earn that love. They did not merit that love. They were not a special people of all peoples on earth. There wasn't something so totally different about them. God says, oh, I love that people. No, in fact, they turned out to be a very difficult people to love. Stiff-necked, stubborn. Yes, I know that sounds a lot like us because we're the same way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And yet the Lord has placed upon Jesus Christ the weight and burden of our sins, our iniquities, so that we might be redeemed and we might experience his love in reality. You know, as we look at that, we see, wow, you know, God's choosing does not look at merit. You know, some people say, well, I I just am uncomfortable with the fact that God would choose me and that he chooses who would believe. But, you know, as you're sitting there today, I ask you this question. Did you choose your parents? Did you choose your parents? Did you choose the day of your birth? Did you choose the place of your birth? Did you choose your nationality or your ethnicity? Did you choose the color of your eyes? 
the color of your skin? Did you choose to be male or female? And we often say, no, I was born. I had no choice in all of that. I was born. That's the reason God uses birth as a figure of the spiritual birth as well. It's not by the will of man or the will of the flesh that we are born again. It's by the work of God through His grace. It is even given to us to believe. Philippians 1.29 As it is given unto you to believe in Jesus Christ, so also it is given to you to suffer for His sake. It's a gift. It's a gift that we marvel at because we can't understand it completely. Even the faith we exercise at the time of salvation, we find out later, is a gift of God. It is He who has chosen. And He has loved us without expectation of return. He has loved us without there being any merit standard for His loving us. He's loved us unconditionally. Therefore, as a result, those objects and those people who are loved by God and chosen by God, have glorious things spoken of them. And that's fascinating to me there. These are divine statements, glorious words. It's in the passive voice. Passive means it's action done to the subject rather than the subject doing the action. If I kick a football... That's active voice. I kick the football. But if, so, if I am kicked by someone, I am the recipient of the action. I was kicked. I'm the subject of that verb, but I'm the recipient of its action. It's passive. When the passive is used that way in Scripture, often it is what we call a divine passive. It is understood that God is the subject. These glorious words aren't being spoken by angels or by men. These words are spoken by God. They are in His Word, like Psalm 48. They are the Word that He has given. And He speaks glorious things. Not only does God love us, He speaks glorious things about us. That is just... Remarkable when you stop to think about it. But why does he speak glorious things about us? It's because of what we have in him. Like Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, The life I now live, I live by the Son of God, who lived and who died, who gave himself for me, that I might live. It's grace. And so the glorious things spoken about us and you say, well, wait a minute, you're jumping ahead here. We're just talking about the city of God. We're talking about Zion. Look at that little word at the end of verse 3. Say, law. Think about it. And we're going to find now as we move in that this is exactly what God intended. That you and I look at this and see us in here. Let's move on to the next part. Verses 4 to 6. Zion selected citizens. Let's identify and find out if you and I can be included in this. All right? Because so far we're reading it and we're saying, you know, the text is talking about Zion, that's in Israel, so it's obviously talking about the Israelites. It's the dwelling places of Jacob. I'm not a member of the family of Jacob. I'm not Jewish, so therefore, maybe this doesn't apply to me. But notice what verse 4 says. I shall mention Rahab. What is Rahab? Rahab, according to Isaiah, chapter 30, verse 7, is Egypt. Egypt. And Babylon, these are the two great world powers, one to the south of Israel, one to the north of Israel. Rahab and Babylon 
among those who know me. The me is God. Whoa, how did that happen? You mean there are Egyptians who truly know God? You mean there are Babylonians who truly know God, even in the Old Testament times? Yes. God's program of redemption has never been limited to just Israel. In fact, we don't even get to Israel in our Bibles until the end of the book of Genesis. The promises of the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 is for all people, all descendants of Adam. God's program includes all people. It has always included all people. When he gave the covenant to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, he said, your seed, your descendants, will be a blessing to all nations, to all peoples. It's always been God's design that all would be involved. But it's not just Egypt and Babylon. Behold, Philistia. You mean the enemies of Israel during the time of David? The Philistines? They too? Yes. And Tyre. Well, that's up in Lebanon. Them? Yes. Ethiopia. That's in Africa. Them too? Yes. Acts 8. The Ethiopian eunuch. Perfect example of one who is filled into this place and dialed in. Now, notice it doesn't mention the United States. It doesn't mention Russia, France. doesn't mention China. doesn't mention Japan or India. The point is that the psalmists are talking about all the major world peoples well known to Israel around them. All the major countries. All of those that are around them. That God has believers among them as well. And the idea is if you can begin there, you can go anywhere in the world with that message. It extends outward. Just as you have that in Psalm 86 verse 9, all nations. Right? So here we have it. And notice what it says at the end of verse 4. This one... Was born there. Now, well, wait a minute. How can they be Egyptian or Babylonian or Philistine or Tyrian, Lebanese and Ethiopian if they are born in Zion? They weren't born physically in Zion, is part of the point. It's spiritually. They are considered as being citizens of Zion. Because they are born again. Let's follow that through. Look at verse 5. But of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one. Notice how it changes. It's not this one was born there, but this one and that one. That's what we do. Uh, on, on my team today, playing basketball after church, I want this one, I want that one, I want this one, I want that one. Right? It's selected. It doesn't include everyone. Not all Israel is Israel, Paul said. Just because one is born an Israelite does not guarantee them salvation. It does not mean they are redeemed. This one and that one. Notice how it's so select. Here are this one out here, born in Babylon, born in Egypt, born in Philistia, born in Tyre, born in uh, uh, the, the other one, Ethiopia. Get that, remember that. You've got to include it. It's very important. This one is born, but not everyone who is actually born in Zion. These are, you say, well, wait a minute. If a person is born in Zion, look at their passport. They're, Isra they're Israelis, they're Israelites. So therefore, they have to be included. No, 
The text says no. Even among those who are born in Zion physically, only this one and that one are truly born there. By God's registry, by God's record. And the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord will count when He registers the peoples. Notice that registering. The writing down. Keep your finger in Psalm 87. Let's turn and look at a couple of very important passages. First of all, let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 4. You see, this is not the only text in Scripture that talks about our names being written down for life or being counted in God's family in some way throughout Scripture. Isaiah chapter 4, beginning at verse 3. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke and the brightness of flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be a canopy. This is yet to come. This is yet to be fulfilled. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 12. The book of Daniel, chapter 12. Daniel speaks of this same hope and of the same registry. Daniel, chapter 12, verse 1. Now, at that time, and the time is when there will be these end time things will happen on the holy mountain, the beautiful holy mountain, according to Daniel 11:45. At that time, Michael, the great archangel, The great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. He is the guardian angel of the nation of Israel. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, but not all your people, Daniel. Your people, but not all your people. Only those, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Only those who are written in the book. And they will be resurrected to what? Everlasting life in verse 2. Turn with me to the New Testament now. Let's take a look at Galatians chapter 4 verse 26. The epistle to the Galatians chapter 4 verse 26. I'll let you get there. And let me make an explanation while you turn. In chapter, in Psalm 87, in verse 5, where it says, But of Zion it shall be said, the old Greek translation says there, But of Mother Zion it shall be said. The old Greek translation was the Bible of the early church. It was the only thing that people had available they could read. It was not a particularly good translation. It had some terrible parts of it. Even the part that the Ethiopian eunuch was saved by is terribly corrupted. But the word of God and its power is not bound, Paul said to Timothy, even by poor translation. It's better to have a good translation, but the word of God is not bound. It is powerful. 
And the people here in receiving Paul's letter are familiar with the concept. He mentions Galatians 4.26 because of Psalm 87. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. This is a quote from the book of Isaiah in chapter 54. And the question is, how can Israel, when they return to the land, have such an abundance of people who return in faith, who believe the Messiah, and God reestablishes them in the land? You see, that isn't done yet. The Israel we know today could be pushed into the sea and it's not going to change one prophecy of the word of God. Because they have not fulfilled the restoration promises of prophecy. Because the restoration promises says they have returned when they are believers. They are the remnant who are saved. They are redeemed. Their names are in the Lamb's book of life. And they return as believers in faith. Israel was not restored in faith in 1948. They are not living in faith today in 2011. So if something happens to Israel tomorrow morning, don't let it destroy your faith. Because the promise of God that Israel will be restored is still yet to come. It has not happened. Because they'll be restored as believers. And once they're restored, there will be no disinheriting from the land. And there will be total victory. And there will be the establishing of the glory of God in the midst of the land. And a change of all history from that point on. The multiplication is because there are those who are born in Babylon, born in Egypt, born in Philistia. Children she did not bear, but children that are restored with her in their multitudes. Then turn to Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews picks this up in a beautiful fashion. Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 22 to 24. The writer talks about Mount Zion and Mount Sinai. And it talks about Mount Sinai as a mountain that trembles and is uh, shaking and that the people are in fear. But he says, you've come to a different mountain than Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels and to the general assembly. And what the church of the firstborn who are enrolled, notice that word enrolled, registered, written down in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and the spirits, the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. That's what this is talking about. That's why the writer of Hebrews, and why Paul speaks of the Zion, who is our mother. The Zion of whom we are citizens, regardless of where we were born physically. Regardless of what passport we have on earth, if we are born again, we are citizens of Zion and accounted so in the registry of God that records our names in the Lamb's book of life. It's recorded as verse 6 of Psalm 87 says, this one was born there. And another time it says, Selah, think on this. Now let's come to the conclusion. Look at verse 7. Then those who sing, as well as those who play the flutes, and probably a better translation is those who dance. 
shall say, all my springs of joy are in you. Why? Well, because everything we have spiritually is in God. Everything. He is the source of everything essential to a God-centered life. Our joy is in Him. The new birth results in joy. Let's go to the close of the psalm in the heading, and I'll explain here very briefly. The way we know the psalm headings to be divided is because of Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1, this is a prayer of Habakkuk. Chapter 3, verse 19, at the end of the psalm, it says, For the chief musician upon my stringed instruments. There's the musical. Here we also have it. And notice it's the reverse of what we had at the beginning. At the beginning it said, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. At the end it reverses and says, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. That's an inclusio, that's a bracketing. It envelops the entire psalm to say, this is the beginning and this is the end of it. And then we have the musical instruction for the choir director, belongs at the end, according to Mahalat Leonoth. Mahalat Leonoth literally means that it's the Response of dancing or the rejoicing of the dancers. And when we look at that, we see it's obviously Mahalat Leonoth is something that's joyful. You don't dance in grief and sorrow, right? You don't dance when it's gloomy and difficult. And if you read Psalm 88, Psalm 88 is the most gloomy psalm in the entire Psalter. It does not fit that you have a heading on there that says, Sing according to the melody of those who dance to the music. And not only that, notice the real heading of Psalm 88 begins with the type of psalm and the author. And the author is not the sons of Korah, but one Heman, the Ezraite. Yes, he was one of the sons of Korah. But he's not the sons of Korah. He's one individual. And this has always produced a problem for people saying, well, how can you have two different authors for the same psalm? Well, it's because we've misdivided the headings. And the joy goes with the preceding. And those who dance shall say, all my springs of joy are in you. That's their response. And it's the dancing response that's talked about there. Now... As you go through this, note very carefully. We went to the New Testament for some of these things. We talked about them. I jumped ahead to give you some ideas. But you can read this psalm by itself and see that it's talking about a birth that is spiritual, not physical. It's obvious. You can't have those born in Babylon being citizens of Zion and counted as born there unless there's a second birth to be counted. Even the Jewish, the unbelieving Jewish commentators, one of them, Amos Hakam, says, the chief lesson that emerges from this psalm is that Zion is the birthplace of all those who come to it to serve God there, even if they are not Jews, and even if they come from very far off lands. Even an unbelieving Jewish commentator sees very clearly that this talks about the new birth. No wonder Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, why are you questioning me about the new birth? You are the teacher. He didn't say a teacher. He said the teacher. You are the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? It's because of Psalm 87. And as James reminded us yesterday of Ezekiel 36 and 37. Speaking of the same thing. The new birth is in... You know, we think the New Testament, everything in the New Testament is new. No. The only thing new in the New Testament is the church. 
Even the new birth is not a new thing. The new birth is not a new doctrine, is not a new revelation. It's the old revelation that Jesus could say to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you should know better. You should understand. You should not be questioning me. You should not have any doubt. You should know better. It's right here. Every one of you here today, according to this psalm, are counted as a citizen of Zion. Think about that. And remember the Selah here. And remember what John wrote in John 1.13. Salvation is for those who are born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Yes, the Ethiopian eunuch fits in here. He was born and became a citizen of Zion because he was born again by his believing the message of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So what do we say in conclusion? Jerusalem is loved and chosen by God. The inhabitants of Jerusalem are loved and chosen by God. But when it comes to counting whom he loves and has chosen for salvation and redemption, some from Babylon, some from Egypt, some from China, some from Japan, some from the United States, some from Germany, some from Palestine, some from Ethiopia, are written down. This one was born there. And in Israel itself... Those who live there, those who have Israeli passports, only this one and that one are counted and registered as being born there. Not all Israel is Israel. The lesson is very plain and very clear. If you're here this morning and you have not been born again, you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You have not believed that he is the one who paid the redemption price for your soul. That God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And to rise again from the dead that you might have life everlasting. If you have not made that decision, don't let this day end before you go before God and accept his invitation of salvation. If you have questions, ask someone here today. How can I be saved? How can I believe in the Savior? How can I have this salvation? How can I be born again and be in the registry, not as a citizen just of America or wherever, but a citizen of Zion? Jesus said, except you be born again, you will in no way at all ever see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. It's exactly how the Old Testament saint was saved, exactly how the New Testament saint is saved, only by being born again. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for your wonderful, marvelous word. We come before you humbly, recognizing that we can do absolutely nothing for our salvation. We cannot redeem ourselves. We cannot pay that price. Only you can pay it for us. Even the faith by which we come to you and accept this good news of salvation 
is a gift that you give to us. Because we're dead in trespasses and sins. And as dead people, we are dull and unresponsive. So when you illumine our minds and bring into our souls that life that allows us to exercise that faith, it is all of you. You have done it. And therefore, it is called the new birth. Lord, we pray that those around us, our unbelieving friends, our unbelieving family members, they might understand that message and that they might be brought by your Spirit to that point of salvation when they too will be born again. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.